Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Ghost Ship by C.A. Borden. It was early in the spring of 1907 that a most remarkable experience occurred to me. So remarkable, indeed, that I lost no time in narrating it. Wise men have looked askance at me while I recounted it, and fools have laughed, yet not daunted. I offer this tale to the world, to ridicule or believe as it will. Ever since a boy I have been fond of the sea. Its vastness, its strength, and even its loneliness have always attracted and fascinated me. Many were the days I spent on its great heaving bosom, even before I reached my teens, fishing, sailing, or rowing. When quite young, I learned to sail, and by the time that I was eighteen, I was an expert. I shipped before the mast on a lumber schooner for two years, studied navigation, and at twenty-five was first mate on the schooner Francis Howard of San Francisco. I have since acted in the capacity of first officer on the passenger steamers plying between San Francisco and Japan, and it was on my return from one of these trips that my story begins. For two years I had been running back and forth between here and the Orient without missing a voyage, and it was on the homebound run in February of this year that I decided, as I paced the bridge on my night watch, to take a vacation something that I had not done for twelve years since I had left my father's roof. So, as soon as we made port and I could leave, I went to the offices of the company and made arrangements to have them put another in my place for the next six months. I then took a car out to my father's house on Divisorado Street. The old people were delighted to learn that I was to be with them for a time and immediately commenced making plans for my entertainment. I had been in town for about a week when one day, while down on the waterfront, I met my old friend Shirley Keith. I had known Shirley for years and liked him. He was a genial sort of fellow with blue eyes and jovial laugh, a laugh which Lee always used when greeting a friend and which made one feel immediately at home with him. "'Well, Jack Kent,' he said as he put forth his hand, "'what are you doing ashore?' I haven't seen you for months of a Sunday. Just loafing, I replied. I'm taking a little vacation after twelve years of the strenuous life. Well, you no doubt need it, though you certainly don't appear to. But come on, and go to lunch with me somewhere. I'm in a hurry. I accepted, so he took me to Tate's, where we selected a table near the orchestra. When we were seated and given our orders, Keith said, You know that I have purchased the schooner yacht Morpheus. What? Not the ghost ship? The same, he said with a laugh. I have not been annoyed by any nocturnal visitors since my ownership. Of course, this ghost business is all bosh, I said. A ghost is the hallucination of a diseased mind. Still, there are some very wise men who believe in the existence of the supernatural, though I, for one, am not bothered by such foolish superstitions. Not that I consider myself wise in any sense of the word. Well, according to her previous owners, very unusual things have occurred aboard the Morpheus. But I'm not worried. And in fact, 
only wish that something of the kind would occur to me for a little excitement, he said. I may have a chance to see something of the kind, as I'm going to take her to Los Angeles at the end of the week and spend the summer in southern waters. That sounds very nice, I said. You had better come with me. I should like to, but I have determined to take a vacation ashore, and besides, I have no stomach for ghosts. Rats, he said. I can fancy your being afraid of ghosts, and as far as the vacation is concerned, we will be ashore half the time. I wanted to go from the very start, and only needed a little persuasion to decide me. So we had not yet finished our noonday repast when I consented. Good, said Keith, reaching out for my hand. I knew that you would come around all right, and now we will go down to the boat. He told me on the way that he had a crew of five men, besides a cook and a mate, the latter's name being Hanson. Keith summoned the launch by whistling through his fingers, and soon a beautifully finished boat, propelled by a two-horse gasoline engine, lay snorting alongside the wharf. As we approached the yacht, I noticed her fine lines and tapering spars, with the sunlight shimmering on her mahogany rails and brasswork. We climbed the companionway and stood upon her white deck. There was a general bustle and stir among her crew. Scraping and splicing were going on, and the odor of fresh paint filled the air. I stood in the cockpit, looking forward, and could find no fault or flaw in her construction. She measured one hundred and twelve feet overall, with a ninety-five-foot water line. Her twenty-foot beam and high freeboard marked her for the weather boat, while her towering masts and graceful lines showed the racer. Keith watched me as I looked her over and noted the pleased expression on my face. "'So you like her looks, do you, old man?' he asked. I should say I do. She is superb. Come below, he said, leading the way down. Below she was even more attractive than on deck. The main salon was a beauty, finished in rosewood and magnificently appointed. Forward of the salon were eight staterooms, bath and galley, and opening off the galley was the forecastle. I was immensely pleased with her appearance and said so. Keith called up the scuttle to the mate who instantly came below. The mate was plainly a Norwegian, both by accent and appearance. He was a large man with strong, kindly face and a decided blonde. Mr. Hansen, let me introduce to you Mr. Kent, who is going to be with us this summer. The mate extended his hand and expressed himself very gravely as being glad to know me. We spent the afternoon on a tour of inspection at about six o'clock were taken ashore. It was Thursday when Keith took me aboard, and I put in the following day in moving my effects out and laying in a supply of white ducks, etc., which I thought might come in handy in southern latitudes. We were to sail Saturday at noon. But Saturday morning Keith came aboard and said that his business would detain him for several days, and asked me if I would mind taking the Morpheus down to San Pedro for him. But was your reason for not keeping the yacht over until you were ready to go yourself? I want her to be down there next week, as I have made some engagements that I must keep. So if you will sail her down, I will take the train when I have completed my transactions, and arrive as soon as you will. I gladly consented, and he went ashore, promising to be down Thursday or Friday of the following week. At twelve o'clock we slipped our moorings, and with all lower sails set, tore out of the Golden Gate, 
propelled by a brisk northeasterly breeze. It was a cold, dreary sort of day, and the heavy chop outside was being lashed into foam by the wind. The Morpheus leapt over the waves, churning the water into milky whiteness under her bows and leaving a seething ribbon of white in her wake. Hanson and myself, who had become good friends by this time, stood chatting behind the man at the wheel until we were clear of the headlands below for a nap. I was awakened at four bells for dinner. After a hearty meal, I lit my pipe and went on deck to find that the wind had risen during the afternoon and that we were bowling along at a good fifteen knots. Hanson went to get his dinner, and I stood watch. Before he came on deck, the wind, which had been blowing so steadily, suddenly dropped to a fitful breeze, and at last ceased altogether, leaving the sails flapping idly and the water slopping under our overhang. We lay in the trough of swell, rolling heavily for several hours, and we were still in this position when I turned in. Everything loose was banging and rattling. The foreboom tore back and forth on the traveler directly over my cabin. The door slammed and squeaked, and the sea swashed alongside with a hollow sow. But these things didn't bother me, and I quickly fell asleep. I was soon awake, however, and standing up, looking out of my port. The wind had come up again, but opposite from the direction before, and we were careening wildly to starboard and rushing through the water. I was soon on deck and saw that quite a wind was blowing and was growing steadily worse. Hansen had called all hands and was giving orders while the men were running here and there, tightening things down and getting in sail. The foresail and jib were quickly furled, and we rowed more steadily under mainsail and staysail. I then went below to finish my sleep and didn't come on deck again until eight bells had struck and Hansen came down. The wind was still blowing heavily, and we were running south-southwest, but not making much time on account of the head seas we were continually piling up before us. Toward morning the wind was blowing almost a hurricane, and all the next day we stood hove to. Sunday evening it abated somewhat, and we again continued our course, out of which we had blown many miles. Monday morning the cook told me at breakfast that strange noises during the previous night had alarmed the crew, and that they had heard that the schooner was haunted. I laughed at this and told the mate, who shook his head and smiled. That day, one of the crew came to me himself and said that he had heard a peculiar sound issuing from below the ship. He couldn't explain the sound except that they were the most terrifying noises. I asked him what had he been drinking and sent him forward. That night, during my watch below, I was aroused by the cook, who came to tell me that the man on watch forward had strangely disappeared and no trace of him could be found. The man's name was Christensen. I went on deck, where Hansen corroborated the statement. We came to the conclusion that he had fallen overboard, though no one had seen him go, and there were two other men on deck at the time. Tuesday night, another member of the crew went in the same mysterious manner. But this time, the mate was watching him. He saw him start violently, give a little cry and grope toward the rail like a blind man. He called to him, but the man gave no heed. He called again, but still the fellow paid no attention and steadily approached the rail. Hansen rushed forward, and the man, whose name was Bergstrom, looked over his shoulder at the sound of the mate's feet, 
A fearful expression came over his face, and with a scream of terror which caused the mate to pause, leapt into the sea. Hansen hurried to the rail, but the wind was blowing strongly, and it was pitch-black night, so he saw no sign of the unfortunate seaman, and by the time he had run aft, pushed the wheelsman aside, and put the schooner into the wind, Bergstrom was several hundred yards astern. He lowered a boat and sent men out with lanterns, but they came back without Bergstrom after spending an hour or more rowing back and forth. When I came on deck a little while later to relieve the mate, two of the three remaining members of our crew and the cook stood against the foremast, while the third was at the wheel. I noticed the latter's face thrown out in strong relief against the black sky by the binnacle light. It wore a strained, frightened expression and every now and then he glanced over his shoulder at the dark, heaving sea, and seeing me behind him, started, and again fixed his eyes on the compass. I ordered the men against the foremast to turn in, and stood the forward watch myself, but nothing unusual happened during the rest of the night, and Hansen looked relieved when I reported all well at dawn. I am not easily frightened." yet I must admit that the singular disappearance of two of our crew in such an unaccountable manner strangely moved me. That night I determined to stand watch with the mate, to be on hand if anything out of the ordinary might occur. Immediately after dinner I lit my pipe and went on deck, where I took my position behind the forward skylight, a good vantage point from which to watch the man on the forecastle deck. Everything ran smoothly for several hours. The watches were called and changed, and the wind, which had been blowing steadily all day, still blew along at a rapid pace. I became sleepy after two hours of watching, with nothing to break the monotony, and at last dozed off. I had been asleep for perhaps five minutes, when I was awakened by a roar from the mate and the sound of running feet behind me. I instantly sprang to my feet and saw the forward lookout groping toward the rail. In two bounds I was upon him. With a despairing cry, the man tried to twist himself from my grasp, and fought with the strength of a tiger to get away, and be would have had Hansen not seized him from behind and held him in an iron grip. "'What is the matter, man?' I asked when he quieted. "'Oh, oh, God, didn't you see it? Didn't you see it?' he cried. "'No, see what?' "'I don't know what it was. Something horrible.' that made me want to jump overboard, to forget it. Look, looked like a lot of drowned people, all fish-eaten and bloated, beckoning me from the water. God, how it frightened me! His voice fell almost to a whisper, and he shuddered and cast an apprehensive glance over his shoulder at the remembrance. We took him below, where I poured him a glass of spirits to steady his nerves and where the bright cabin light seemed to comfort him. The remainder of the night passed peacefully, and at six in the morning I turned in. I was very tired after my all-night vigil, and soon dropped into a dreamless slumber from which I did not awaken until three in the afternoon. When I rolled over and looked at my watch, I was surprised at the lateness of the hour and quickly dressed, wondering why I had not been called. Everything seemed unusually quiet, and a strange foreboding of evil stole over me as I mounted the companionway stairs. This quickly turned into a sort of terror when I saw that no one is at the wheel, and the deck was absolutely deserted. 
I called loudly several times, but the creak of the boom against the mast and the shill scream of seagulls wheeling in flight overhead were the only answers I received. I rushed to the forecastle scuttle and peered down. No one was there. I rummaged through every part of the vessel, but not a soul was aboard. What had become of my companions? With a lonesome feeling, I ran on deck, glad to escape the increasing gloom of the cabin. For the first time, I noticed that one of the boats was gone. I scanned the sea far and near with my glass, but no boat met my gaze. The straight azure line of the horizon stood boldly against the lighter blue of the sky unbroken. With a curse, I turned my attention to the compass and saw that the schooner was miles off her course, and I had no idea how long she had been running thus. There had been no entry in the log for the day, so I worked out my position and found that I was still 125 miles from my destination, due to the fact that I had been running evidently most of the day at right angles to my original course. Having set the bow once more in the right direction, I went below again to light up and get something to eat, intending to spend the night at the wheel. When I returned, however, the wind had dropped almost nothing, and at last ceased altogether. I sat in the cockpit for a while, smoking, but at last went to my stateroom to read until the wind should refreshen. I read for several hours, and had just laid my book down to look at the barometer when a peculiar sound on deck attracted my attention. I imagined that a man was walking up and down overhead. I listened intently. Yes, there it was again, nearer now, and more distinct. I held my breath for a minute. The sound continued. Tramp, tramp, up and down, up and down. The man if man it was, evidently had water in his boots, for at every step I could hear the sound and ooze of water, and every turn in his beat I heard it pattering on the deck. In a frenzy of foolish fear and nervous apprehension, I rushed up to see what it was. But all my fright was for nothing, for no one was there. A smiling moon lit up a peaceful sea. The shadows rode slowly back and forth across the deck, and the boats swung noiselessly in their davits. I surveyed the tranquil scene for several minutes, and then, with a laugh at my own cowardice, went below to my book. I had no sooner taken it up, though, than the noise which had previously startled me had resumed. Tramp, tramp, tramp. I started up and listened. The step ceased for a minute, and I heard a deep groan, followed by a sigh as though from one in agony. Then the steps continued. My heart was pounding wildly, and the cold perspiration stood in heavy beads upon my forehead. With a superhuman effort, I again went on deck. There was nothing there to cause alarm. Everything was the same as before. Waiting for a few minutes, I went back to my book. As I neared my door, the light in my room was suddenly extinguished, and I was left in utter darkness except for the rays of the moon which filtered through the skylight and portholes and fell in odd-shaped patches on the wall. At first, a dread of the supernatural stole over me, and I was for turning back, but upon reflection decided that a draught had blown out my lap. I lit it up again, and it burned as brightly as ever. So nervous was I by this time that I locked and bolted my door. I then attempted to finish the story I was reading, 
but my mind kept continually reverting to that terrible sound, and I was constantly on alert for it to begin again. Suddenly, the ring knob of my door dropped with a sharp click, almost causing my heart to stop. I looked at it intently for a second. Good God! It was turning! So was the bolt knob! Petrified with fear and astonishment, I lay there for a moment, watching it as it slowly and deliberately turned. Then I sprang for the door. With all my strength, and I am no weakling, I strove to twist it back. I even bent the ring in my hand, but with irresistible force, it began to open inward very slowly. I flung my weight on it and braced myself against the bunk behind me, but to no avail. Slowly it forced me back, and at the same time the lamp was extinguished again. With a hoarse sob of fear, I loosened my grip on the door and let it swing, unhampered, slowly, inward, while I hurriedly struck a match to light the lamp again. The little point of flame flared up for a second, but immediately went out. At the same time, an icy hand seemed to touch me from behind, and I heard a low, deep moan issuing from the darkness. In a frenzy of fear, I endeavored to run from the gruesome cabin out into the starry night. But some unexplainable, undefinable thing held me at the door, and strive as I would, I could not pass. I groped back to the bunk. My foot suddenly came in contact with something on the floor, and I tripped and fell flat across it. It seemed to be a big bunch of seaweed and all wet and slimy. I hurriedly jumped to my feet, drew away from it, and lit another match. This time it burned long enough for me to see what I had fallen over. It was seaweed, but was all tangled and gnarled around what appeared to be the fish-eaten and bloated corpse of a man. At the same time, the gruesome thing reared itself into a standing position and moved toward me. The match went out, but by the light of the moon I beheld its terrible and fearsome features as it advanced, peering out of the tangle of yellow kelp with its empty sockets. I shuddered with horror and drew my knife, striking out wildly, but the awful apparition did not stop, though I struck home repeatedly. My brain reeled, and I fell senseless to the cabin floor. When I recovered, the consciousness and the sun was streaming in upon me through the skylight. How I welcomed its warm, generous yellow light to drive away the awful darkness, and how glad I was when I went on deck after my cold breakfast of ham and bread to hear the water gurgling alongside and find a gentle morning breeze wafting me steadily southward. At three that afternoon, I put in behind the breakwater at San Pedro and managed to let go anchor and get down my head sails alone. Keith, who had grown anxious about me, had been keeping watch from the veranda of the South Coast Yacht Club on the bluff, was alongside in a launch almost as soon as the chain had rattled through the hawse pipe. It certainly felt good to feel his strong hand clasp and hear his friendly voice. He told me that the men, terrified of the prospect of spending another night aboard, had overpowered the mate, put him into one of the boats and slipped away while I was asleep. They had been picked up by a lumber schooner and brought into San Pedro, and thus ended my most terrible experience. We have since discovered that the main mast of the Morpheus 
was one which had been in the Norwegian Bark Victory when she had foundered off the Golden Gate in 1899, carrying all hands to the bottom. Perhaps this is the explanation. Keith has had a new mast put in anyway. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram at Marley's Ghosts or Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I just love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon at Marley's Ghosts, where we have lots of tiers to choose from and each one with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.